0: So hello and welcome to another episode of Rebel City Podcast. Matt, how did we get to episode
1: 100? Um, I've got absolutely no idea, to be honest with you. It seems like two and a half years have flown by. Um, We've been pushing this off and pushing this off because we had hoped it might have been able to get done live in a pub or, you know, do a wee live thing for episode 100. It's not panned out that way, obviously, with circumstance, but at the same time, we are extremely happy to be welcoming Councillor Kim Long um, to talk in the first of our podcasts in the build-up to the election this year, which to me seems appropriate for, you know, a kind of anniversary episode.
0: Absolutely. And I think, like, in two-guy... Well, I'll speak for myself, won't speak for you, Matt. Somebody that's in search for, a, like, an alternative vote that um, in the, the upcoming election. or Basically, my vote's up for grabs. It's not my natural smp i'm voting smp which i've done in previous elections so i think like the green party is the best one to get in first of all um because it's the one i've been working at the most anyway but anyway kim it's lovely to have you on
2: thank you so much for having me
0: no problem you are the council councillor for denniston and North East, so that's matt's constituency and where i grew up I can all
1: represent <laughs> well, yeah, hi Deniston. Hi, Deniston.
2: Hi, Deniston. There you Merchants go. Merchant City East. Merchant City East. That's what we are now. Exactly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Gentrifying East End. Uh, I grew up in Canteen. I don't know if Canteen falls into your constituency. No, it's just
2: does. outside it. So, like the boundary with Hogarth Park is where I stop. So it's a really weird ward that I've got. So, at, like below the M8, I've got Haghill and Deniston all the way up to Drygate. So, like the corner of Duke Street and High Street. So pretty much into the town. And then on the other side of the motorway, I've also I represent. Um, Royston, Sighthill and Germiston. So it's a totally my weird. As well. Sorry?
1: You're my councillor as well then up in Springburn. There
2: you go. Well not not just up to Springburn and um, it stops at like the Tesco so it's a really weird Aye. it's a really weird area with like we've got a motorway in between us and all the communities are very different from each other mm-hmm. um, and don't have the same needs and experiences. Um, so it's it's uh, a delightful challenge to try and, you know, get to know all the communities and, and I wouldn't presume to, like, to know what, you know, the different communities need. You know, it's my job to kind of get out and ask and work out what they need and try and advocate for them. But it's quite challenging when I've got six completely separate <laughs> communities. Yeah.
1: How much credit are you taking for Deniston being the seventh most trendy <laughs> area <laughs> in the world? Like, how much of that are you claiming?
2: Oh, it's definitely all me. Yep.
1: <laughs> Did you That's see in the like mural,
2: um, the mural that was painted outside Redman's Club, all um, Deniston, and mm-hmm. um, it, they've gone back and put like some burning tires in the background and the, the Liddle sign and everything because it was looking a bit too posh. <laughs> uh,
1: bit yeah. Too I much, mean, yeah. when
0: we were growing up, I'll be honest, like Duke Street was not a place a welcoming place for no. me or where Matt came from, or where I came from. And I was saying that to my girlfriend actually. We were walking up to. Um, a shop in uh, Poso, just at the top of Saracen Street, and I was saying to her, like, would you believe that this was, like, a war zone when I was a mm-hmm. teenager? Um, and now you, you can just freely walk up and down it, so um, I, it's, things have changed, and I think Duke Street and East End, as we're saying, Merchant City, we are make a joke about that, but things have vastly improved in that area over the yeah, last, sort of, 20, 30 year, like, big time. So you were the first Green councillor in the area? Yes. Um, which is some achievement. Is that area generally a Labour stronghold?
2: Um, I think it it had been like when we were going around doors um, in the run-up to the 2017 election, um, met so many people who were just disillusioned. So some people who were disillusioned with sort of everything, um, you know, not specifically Labour, and then some folk folk who were just, you know, done with it and uh, couldn't bring themselves to to that, even though it'd been in their kind of, in their family for, you know, this is what we do, we vote vote Labour. Labour. But because, I mean, we had just a sort of relentlessly positive campaign, we knocked like 7,000 doors and just went and spoke to people because I I lived there, you know, I was a resident I'm, you know, I'm coming from a community work background. I was just like, look, I'm just here to get stuff done, you know. And so people gave me their trust, which was pretty amazing, really.
0: That's amazing. So just hard work, just a bit of graft and some relatability and you've got your foot in the door in the area that's so good um yeah. is that the area that you're running for msp in 2021 elections
2: so for um 2021 we're like i'm on the list for glasgow so um anyone in glasgow the vote screen um will hopefully get me as their msp excellent
1: are we seeing a, a bit yeah an increase in available sort of green candidates in the city because i think in the last scottish parliamentary election I, you know, prior to all this, had not necessarily done the type of research that I'd probably expect to do this year and walked in expecting to be able to take the SNP and my sort of first vote and the Green in the second vote. And I don't think there was a Green candidate available the last time I'm I right in saying that, or was it? it also, top it, of my head. I no can't sure.
2: remember because we've had so many elections in the past yeah. five years that all sort <laughs> of blending into each other. Um, but... Yeah, like we're still, uh, we're kind of yet to announce what we're doing exactly in terms of constituencies, but um, mm. in terms of the list, so it's um, Patrick Harvey's number one, I'm number two, and then number three is um, an amazing woman called Nadia Kanyangi, who would be the first woman of colour MSP, the first refugee MSP. Um, so, yeah, and then we've got an amazing list of, of candidates as well. So, like everyone in Glasgow is going to be able to vote Green.
0: Mm-hmm. So, you guys like the Scottish equivalent of AOC and the um, <laughs> the squad <laughs> the squad yeah, the squad. it feels like that to me it really does well, feel like
2: that that's me. really that, I mean well compliment like you'll see as total goals but um, yeah like there's a bunch of the the kind of lead candidates who are women across the country you know we're friends like we're pals we've, we've been through this together and we, we do support each other through because politics can sometimes be um, pretty hostile for women and um, I uh, <laughs> I dug out um, I had a friend made me a cape um, which is just amazing. I put it on my office door to, like, you know, make me feel <laughs> confident. Um, and my pal Laura Moody, who's uh, standing in the south of Scotland for the Greens, and she's just, she's absolutely amazing. She's like such a, such an experienced campaigner. She's a mum of four. She's a total like Wonder Woman. And uh, she texts me saying, right, okay, so when we get our offices, are we putting up your cape? <laughs> and it was just like, yeah, you know, that's that's just a really inspiring thought of like, can we? can we be there and support each other, you know, that would be just Mm
1: -hmm. amazing. It's cool to have that network around you. I mean, obviously, you've touched on, hopefully, what we'll plan out in the future for you. Like, let's, just as we're getting started, maybe cover how you, I mean, how did you get into politics? Where where did it start for you?
2: Yeah, well, this is, um, to be honest, it's quite nice to have the the chance to talk about this because quite often you get asked that question, you have to boil it down to, like, one sentence, and uh, that's awfully difficult to do. So... was sort of different threads of my life came together at different points um so when I was really young I was really lucky to have two fantastic youth workers and they supported us to explore all kinds of kind of global justice issues um so I went to my first protest when I was 10 and um that was about debt liberation for countries in the global south um and then but that sort of it's an interesting I mean, like, starter
1: for a ten-year-old. World <laughs> like, like, much... <laughs> economy, like just dip your toes in there. You know?
2: Exactly. So I didn't have, you know, I didn't have a huge grasp of it, but um, I was excited by it, and I, I did have enough. Like kids know when things are unfair, you know. So I did have that um, understanding, and then actually, it was the anti-Iraq War protests that were my like political awakening, kind of about here. um so I was 13 I went in the protests, and I like I was so inspired like it just felt I mean I think inspired is too shallow a word really because it was just so moving to be like out on the streets with all these people that I didn't know I'd never met you know from all parts of the city that I I, you know didn't know and we were all it was like a sense of something bigger than myself you know and um Mm -hmm. So I like I joined the CND and I put a poster up in my bedroom window and you know no war. and I'm sure there like four people that walked pass with their dogs, you know, <laughs> I find that inspiring. But that was like a turning point for me because then, you know, weeks later when Tony Blair still went to war, and I just felt like this sense of but but all of us were right. That was like the biggest protest that there'd been in generations in Glasgow. How could you just do that without? with just sort of dismissing the voice of, of the citizens. And, I mean, yeah, like, it's total privilege to get to the age of 13 without realising that the government is not on your side. But yeah. um, that was still a big kind of turning point. Um, so I've always sort of in that way been, like, political, but small p. Um,
0: That's so cool, because we've, and I've, I've, I've spoke a lot on the podcast about how that felt like a turning point like a sort of fracture in a yeah. society that happened at that point yeah. where we'd always felt that if we took to the, if the masses took to the streets and they're, they're, wanted their voice to be heard, for it to be ignored like that by somebody who'd been voted in on a campaign of hope, I mean it was always, things can only get better and Tony Blair yeah. was like our Bill Clinton or our Barack Obama at, to some respects and I feel like Labour, that was a point where it kind of splintered the support and I've always took... Well, I've kind of cited that as where people started to move to the right. And it's so good for me personally, just selfishly to hear somebody that was inspired by that negative event to then push on a more hopeful politics rather than what seems to be let's go back to just moving towards the right. So, like, that's amazing. And I'm sure you're not alone. You're not the only one. So like that, the, the Iraq war protest could be like the Sex Pistols at Manchester where everybody went and formed a band. <laughs> everybody went get into politics. If they, uh, if they, uh, yeah, yeah.
2: Are. I mean, that was like, it, looking at it now, I can see it as a real milestone, but I didn't sort of join any of the rest of the dots, you know, for a while. Cause then, so I, I left home and I went to Dundee to go to uni and had an absolute ball. And um, I was already doing youth work. So when I went to Dundee, I. Um, became part of this just totally amazing project called Hot Chocolate Trust and it's right in the middle right in the centre of Dundee and it's basically just open doors and young people come from wherever and because they're in they're in town and then we were there to basically give them hospitality so like um come in you can have a safe place that is warm that is not freezing cold and raining and um you can get a cup of tea or some hot chocolate and we had like you know there was like a sports hall and an art room and a room with just couches in it to sleep before snog <laughs> frequently um and then <laughs> um but we were not we weren't there to put on activities and we weren't there to to like to mold them into anything we were we were just there to be present and mm. to get alongside young people and if they then wanted support on a you know a housing issue or whatever then we would we would offer them that support but everything was completely on their own terms and, and directed by the young people and that was pretty radical um, and being part of Hot Chocolate and it was very much like being part of it because there was a community of, of volunteers and, and and teams so I was there like I did a Tuesday night session every week for four years and as part of the team we were like we held each other in a very again a pretty radical way it was about accountability but also like support because you know sometimes it was really harrowing and so, like, for example, at the end of every single session, so we would, you know, the young people would go, away, we we'd do, all, do all the dishes and clean up. But then we would have, like, a debrief and we would talk through how it was tonight. Like, so what went well, what didn't go well, how can we learn from it? And so that ability to process stuff and to be like, do you know what, I don't think I handled this very well. And then we would sort of collectively say, well, what can we do next time? And it was never, because with youth work, with anything that you're doing working with people there's no right answer a lot of the time you know there's not it wasn't like trying to memorize a set of rules but it was more like yeah. in this scenario this is what happened and actually this time that doing this next time would maybe minimize the danger or mm. um you know or if there'd been some you know some relational harm then could people and try and repair that so yeah that was really radical and I just I learned so much and also from the young people and like it was young people that came into the center who had basically fallen through all the gaps everywhere else. You know, so it was young people that didn't feel welcome at home. Um, yeah. A lot were not at school. A lot were were kind of falling through everything. And we had, you know, there was just so much chaos because young people were coming from, you know, homes that, um, that well, maybe they'd been they'd been thrown out because they were queer or trans. Um, maybe they were at home with a parent who had an addiction and there was, you know, that kind of level of chaos. Yeah. There was young people who were homeless or... Like so sometimes they literally didn't have a, a bed for the night and they didn't that wasn't even an issue because they'd just be out all night. Um, but like also that they were just really vulnerably housed and sofa surfing and everything. So yeah, um being alongside that and kind of in the midst of that, and then we were we we didn't turn people away if they were drunk or high um because we'd rather that they were inside and had like some water and you know we could keep an eye on them. Of course. Um which was interesting with the police and stuff. So Mm-hmm. yeah like being part of that community really broke me apart and put me back together differently do you know yeah. and so at the end of that like so i finished and my my degree was in um english which i loved but also european studies which you okay. know r.i.p like everything i learned is, <laughs> is <obviously, laughs> so yeah, i was well, like I what do i do you know nervous and, laugh. uh, <laughs> yeah lol <laughs> um <laughs> so but I was like oh, what am I going to do with myself and and like I was just like well I want to do what I have been doing you know um, hot chocolate is so important and I, and I want to be part of something like that um, mm. but I was also moving to Glasgow so I moved to Glasgow and um, had a coffee with this phenomenal woman called Alison Urie who was actually the founder of hot chocolate and she'd moved to Glasgow as well and I didn't really know her that well but we had this chat and she was looking for staff cover for her a summer project working in Pullman Young Offenders Institution yep. um, teaching mm-hmm. guitar classes. Now I do not play the guitar <laughs> but I was a youth worker and I sing so and I was paired up with um, a musician called Andrew Howie so the two of us spent the summer working with young women in Pullman who weren't yeah. even supposed to be there it was only because there was asbestos in Vale, so they've been sort of shoved into Pullman and, um, and that was another scenario of like been just kind of broken open by the level of, um, yeah, brokenness is the word that I yeah. use in terms of being alongside these girls. And and we just, we had such a laugh and like it was so bizarre to go into that space. And there was always just so much tension and so much, um, yeah, there's so much happening going in, you know, you could feel it you walk in, it just of felt course. like, you know, if you could like string a, a tune a guitar or like string a, pull the, the strings of a guitar too tight, Mm-hmm. you know it just felt like that that was how it felt the whole time mm-hmm. that everything was just about to snap and we would go in and like be able to like like one time we just made up a stupid song about i think it was one about about one of the officers to be honest but um and then the girls were just like shouting fuck at the top of their lungs and like really angry strumming and it it worked to diffuse the tension you know and obviously that that helps for five minutes right so there's no yeah. there's no magic wand, but it was again like oh my god, I need to, I need to be, like, this is where I need to be doing stuff, you know, this is where we need to be, Mm -hmm. and Alison was on her own journey of that, and I kind of went back to it, it, like, I'm in here, you know, so we, and she'd met Fergus McNeil, who is a professor of criminology at Glasgow Uni, and very, like, respected in his field, so, yeah, so Alison and I and a bunch of other people, we set up this new social enterprise, um, called Vox Luminous, and it was doing, um, music in and around well cultural kind of things but um, at that point with music in and around the, the criminal justice system so all of that was happening and like i was just learning so much and being so it was like a cycle of just being absolutely horrified and then at the same time just amazed by the kind of strength and resilience of yeah. the folk that i was working with and then ndref was also happening and I got involved with my, like, my local kind of yes campaign and so that was the first time I had done like door knocking and canvassing and that kind of stuff and it was a lot easier than I thought and also like I'm trying to put this politely but I had always maybe in the back of my head I would I'd always had like maybe I could go into politics when I'm like 55 Do you know when mm-hmm. I'm like old enough when I'm smart enough when I've got enough qualifications when I'm yeah and in that campaign i was alongside some people who were pretty well established and some of them were, were brilliant right but some of them had not a clue what they were doing and i was i'm a very like i'm just very organized and i'm good at like motivating people and stuff and so there was one day that we were out in this van with all these people and it was just chaotic and i was just like oh my god give me that clipboard, like i could do this better <laughs> you know? mm. so that was a bit of a, a turning point again of like Okay, why am I ruling really myself out here? You know. Mm-hmm. And then when we lost Indy Ref, I was obviously I was just, you know, I'm so devastated and, you know, cried myself to sleep. And but I just thought, well, if this matters so much, then I, I don't know why I'm waiting till I'm 55 you know, I need yeah. to do something now. Um, and that then like a month later, I was on the bus, <laughs> I was on a bus to Fazlane Lane for a protest. And I was sitting next to my pal Sam, who is uh like Brazilian immigrant settled in Scotland, he he was part of hot chocolate as well. So he knew, he knew where I was coming from. And we were just, ha- we were just like processing everything and talking about India. And we just were talking and it, just through the conversation, it was just this epiphany of like, oh shit, see if we had something as good as hot chocolate in every corner of Scotland. We're still only like just about sometimes keeping people's heads above the water. Mm-hmm and it takes everything we've got and at some yeah. point you need to go upstream and stop people being being pushed under you know so yeah that was a kind of like right okay what do I do mm-hmm. <laughs> so feels I then, quite
1: like a natural progression in a lot of senses like
2: yeah like it was I suppose it was it was a kind of point of everything coming together and then so I spent the next couple of years like both doing community work so as well as projects with Vox, I then did like i worked with glasgow women's library um so i ran their like young women's program and that's just it's another absolutely phenomenal organization and oh
1: probably yeah. jewel and the crown organization for the city
2: exactly and it should be funded as such <laughs> um so yeah like just having these like really transformative experiences of working mm. with people and then also um by that point like i'd already been a Green Party member, but I got really. I I tried to take a small step of dipping my toe in the water of joining the the branch committee, and then that became like running the <laughs> running the branch and
1: um, organizing. Give me that again.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> but like with a bunch of really great people. I mean, that is the such a surprising thing. I did not go into politics to make friends. You know, to be honest, like I had a lot of friends. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't need pals, but there's something. It's been amazing to just meet all these like very you know like like minded people who are not just sitting in a pub talking endlessly but like actually getting shit done like making yeah. things happen
0: yes mm-hmm. you know i think like this like, is really... such an inspiring story for people to hear because we, well episode 101 that we recorded <laughs> yesterday with natalie for cisco i don't know if you're um, cisco recovery I'm, I'm not sure if, if you're aware of uh, cisco recovery um i had said that basically, people with lived experiences, as Natalie put it, Natalie kept reiterating this lived experience, and I think the word that's actually, like, important in there is experience. Yeah. Um, I was yeah. advocating for people like Natalie to go into politics, and she was saying that she she gets this sort of thought of just Natalie, ex-addict, what am I going to... And I think that's the same sort of thing that it's almost like an imposter syndrome, but yeah. when you get yourself in on the front line, as I'm sure a lot of young people do, and realise, wait a minute, these old people will fuck all about what's going on they don't know how to speak to people and I'm going to engage so like get out my way Um, it feels like that's that's where we need to go with politics is to encourage people with these experiences because when I think about politics sometimes I do get this vision of Jacob Rees-Morgan his Rolls-Royce his teddy bear going to Dundee and getting chased back down to Westminster and I think that's everything that's wrong with politics but what you're explaining somebody who goes and doesn't necessarily live that life, but goes into the activism and and helping out, volunteering and putting your time and blood, sweat and tears into it, then for you to move into the political spectrum, I think is like, go for it. Like, you know, this is what we need. We need people that have seen this because how can, like I'd say yesterday to Natalie, Mary Black had said to us when we interviewed Mary, how could Boris Johnson know what it's like how could mm-hmm. Jacob Rees Mogg know what it's like? They've been privately educated, they've had nannies, they'll never know. So yep. what you're saying is is you've seen it firsthand and it inspired you to become a council, a counsellor,
1: and now you're 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 running for MSP. So more power to you, because I think that's I think, really important. I think the electorate can sense that authenticity as well. I think one of the things that puts a lot of people off and when I talk to people about their political journeys and how they got into it, especially when we're talking to a number of politicians, as we have, I always get that Billy Connolly thing in my head where it's, you know, the people who put themselves forward for political power are almost certainly the people who should be excluded for it. And that's where we, we sense that inauthenticity of some of them. But I think when we're talking to yourself, and as I say, that's what feels like natural progression from activism towards policymaking, like, we can also sense that in the electorate too. And I think that's something that is actually really important for us to start seeing again, because i don't think we can actually rebuild trust in politics and then we we need to if we don't feel like we're representatives are actually like authentic
2: that's exactly it no i I really appreciate you saying that and i think (coughs) um i think yeah i think communities can smell bullshit a mile off and that contributes to a lack of trust and um it's so important and like so an example would be this was a couple of years ago i was at a conference it was a conference about criminal justice something or other right and it was in Barlini and you could just tell that there's some people there because of the like the excitement the wee bit of it's a bit sexy going in the prison for the day you know and and like I just didn't feel like I was there anyway because I I didn't have like a PhD and I I wasn't kind of part of the academia and I wasn't part of the, the policy making thing anyway and I was younger and I was just there and Um, anyway but then at the break time right there was so there was guys from the jail who'd been put in the room as well and they were kind of sharing their story and it wasn't it it didn't that's that made it sound a bit more exploitative than I think it was Mm. but it was very much like them and them and them you know there was two groups and then at the break I just went over and had a cup of tea and was standing talking to these to these guys because I didn't know if any of them had been part of our projects or anything and no one else did that and I wasn't doing it as a crusade. I didn't think about it. I wasn't there to, mm-hmm. I wasn't making a point. I was just used to it because that's what we always did in, in projects. We went in and we, we went in and shook hands with everybody in the room, learned their names, used their names. And that was, again, just how we operated. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a deliberate tactic. But yes. that simple thing totally changed. We realized later, it totally um, it changed how things normally work in a prison. It mm. was, you know you've just got numbers and, and individuals don't really matter and um everything's so transient as well so like I was just operating on this is how I work yeah um but I just stood there noticing that all these like people in fancy clothes were on the other side of the room you know and it was yeah. just um it was bizarre but like those are the people that are making decisions you know those mm-hmm. are people that are deciding where the new prison's going to be and um all these things and it just like smacks of how we need Like, that's the point of having representative democracy, which we absolutely do not have, you know, and that's why it's important to have, like, women in politics and people of colour and blah, 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 because otherwise, it's not that decisions aren't being made about, you know, disabled people or black people. It's decisions are being made about disabled people by people who are not disabled, or people are making decisions. White people are, predominantly white people, are making decisions that affect black people, you know, and and we we need to have institutions and and decision-making rooms that are full of people who are affected and who get those decisions. Um, Yeah, people that want
1: to engage with other side as well, because it looks as though, through the example you're talking about, that that didn't seem to, although everybody was there to talk, nobody was actually really there to engage with other side or anybody else that was participating, so I would need that outreach
2: yeah like but or even consider that actually the the answers to what the questions that you're asking might be contained within the people that have gone through this and maybe they're the experts do you know Absolutely. like not even just to kind of listen to people out of human decency but like <laughs> if you want to know like if you want to know how to make a better immigration system then maybe we need to be Having that immigration system be,
1: be designed for people who've gone through it and survived. I'll speak it. to some immigrants who've been through it. Um, we'll we'll move on for just your early days and talk a wee bit more because we we were very fortunate in, in our early days to get invited into um the city chambers by David McDonald, um who was kind enough to kind of show us around the building. And I I mean it's it's a beautiful building. What's it like to go day one, new job, <laughs> and have to go and face this? you know, thing that you know, we we all have we, we all know it we all you know we maybe not all been to it but it's got to be quite an intimidating because I mean we were walking in for like an hour long interview like pure wow this place is awesome. Mm-hmm. So I mean what's it like to like show up on day one for work and be like this is my job now?
2: Yeah absolutely mental. Um <laughs> the the bizarre thing about elections is that so like polling day is on the Thursday, you spend the entire day at a polling station like your feet are absolutely lopened by the end of it. You then stay up all night at the count although local elections actually it was you got a wee bit of sleep because the count was during the day the next day right so thursday voting friday count you then just got saturday sunday you're high as a kite and also like absolutely exhausted and you've got a million people to thank and everybody in the world is texting you and it was just like because i my campaign we, we were very very We we knew that because it's only three, um, there's only three councillors in that ward. So if it's four councillors, it's easier to get in because the threshold is lower. So because there's only three, we knew every no matter how well we could do, and we knew we were doing well in the campaign, but we didn't know that I was going to get in at all. So it was very much like, I I just I was quite numb honestly. Like there's photos of me like gleeful at the count that I don't I don't really recognise because I'm like (laughs) I don't know what I was feeling, and also because like people didn't get in, you know your pals didn't get in or um yeah so the camp is a really bizarre experience dead exciting but like all emotions and then two days i don't really remember the saturday sunday because it was just like what's happening and then you start work the next day there is no transition time so there's no you know wow. the american system obviously many problems with america right but they do have one thing right in terms of you have an election then you've got a grace period before you have to start Because yeah. i mean i didn't know what to wear because I was a community worker. And you can't just put on a suit if you're a woman. You have to like work out something that's smart but not too smart. And like I didn't, I didn't know what the levels of smartness were going to be. Yeah. And um, it was bizarre. We had this like mad freshers fair thing <laughs> that they had in the in the banquet hall of the city chambers, and they had all the different directorate heads um standing behind trestle tables and you had to kind of go around and see what they all did and shake their hands. I've absolutely no idea what it was because it was so overwhelming. I had no idea who any of them were. And I I argued with a man from Clyde Gateway. Um, This is really bizarre, but he was like, you know, introducing himself and and he was like, how do you feel about regeneration? And I was like, "Mm, "Weary," And he was really angry at me. (laughs) Like, wow, this is day one. Um, Yeah. So yeah, that is weird. And then also, I mean, I didn't have a desk. So my phone was on the floor and it had the name of the counsellor that didn't get in. again it had his name on it and like the first phone call like the phone rang and you know when you're sort of all looking at it sort of like gingerly so I go go towards it with my hand out straight it's like oh god who's on the end of the phone and it was horrendous right because it was this woman who had two kids and was homeless and had reached out to this previous counsellor for help and he had like not gone to where he was supposed to meet her and then there had been no handover there had been no handover whatsoever yeah and I was just like, I have absolutely no idea what to do. So like, I just kind of listened with sympathetic and I was like, let me get back to you. And then thankfully, by the next time, like I phoned her back the next day and things had progressed. So she was all right. But I was just like, what kind of system is it that mm. there's no handover of, of constituents? Because we deal with like bin complaints, but then you've also got people who are really in a very precarious situation. So it's just, yeah. and then you don't get training on that. So <laughs> I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? Um so yeah, that was very much in at the deep end. And yeah, as you say, like the, the building is very intimidating and built of a lot of um, like we're starting to talk about how the you know the wealth of Glasgow is built on the back of slavery. But yeah,
1: that's yeah. very
2: much, very much evident. And then um Yeah. I you I talk and
1: to
0: rec? That.
2: Yes, I absolutely love parts of it.
0: So it reminds me of like Leslie Nope showing people round and like, oh, we've covered up the bit where we killed the, the Native American and <laughs> they're just kind of like that's what Glasgow City Chambers is like when when you look at it through the lens of like the slavery aspect that's been really hot topic the last year if you go there and you visit i think if i ever go again i will be looking at it like that it does kind of feel like it is um,
2: wild and like beautiful though yeah i mean the marble is beautiful um but the it's kind of it's quite like hogwarts though like there's staircases in places (laughs) i still get lost um i had to go in to pick up a new computer um about a month ago and uh, like I've been working from home for about a year, and so I had to go in to get this computer, and I took the wrong turn out of an office, and I ended up <laughs> going down some stairs and to a dead end. <laughs> I was like, I I have no idea where I am. <laughs> I don't know. Don't know I've ended up here. Don't know where this staircase is. I just retraced my steps and tried to find a different way, but it, it's really confusing. There's loads of different stairs and there's like the public facing bit which is the kind of white marble but then there's the parallel staircase on the other side that doesn't go up all the floors and there's a secret lift in a different corner and then there's the wee secret staircase to go up to the roof and stuff which I really want to go up but uh, I don't think they would let me um but yeah and then like our office the green office is on the top floor in the corner of the portrait gallery so it's where all the all the old lord provost's portraits are and that is really intimidating honestly because like I'm walking in there I was uh, 26 and got elected you know feeling like what is this and then you walk in and all these portraits of these like enormous old white men half of them are in military dress and they're all sort of staring at you as you like go to your office where you don't have a desk
1: <laughs> so <You're> City <welcome laughs> Chambers, yeah,
2: yeah exactly and like in this the kind of debating chamber um because it's all sort of uh, it's wooden and, and leather seats so the seats are dead comfy right but I am too small to put my feet on the ground so I have to put them <laughs> up
1: <laughs> yeah
2: it was not built for me I have to put them up um on the the back of the ones in front which is again fine but not for a five-hour meeting um because that is too uncomfortable or I've like ripped my tights all the time because the wood snags and the toilets there's fewer women's toilets and they are miles away from anything so you miss like. I have a productivity lack because, <laughs> because it so takes. There's a number me of ways of the business designed for you then. Indeed,
0: indeed. Absolutely. Uh, just to like move on, like just wary of time. I'm enjoying the conversation, but we're like nearly forty-five minutes in, and we're just nattering away. Um, just trying to like bring it into like why we're here and talk about like the campaign and talk about the Green Party. Um, I think that the last sort of four, well, maybe like the last year, there's been quite within the Yes movement, there's been quite a lot of sort of opinions and a lot of movement between people. And I think that Mean Matter are included in that, where we not liking a lot about what we're seeing in Scottish politics of late. Um, the the GRA seems to be a very sort of, I
1: don't know what way we would put it, like quite a, I don't know, Matt. I think we've seen the day. There, was, there, there was an article that they published saying that Within the SNP movement, it's actually a pretty small proportion of people who are really noisy. But I think over the course of the last year or so, it has you know that noise has sown doubts in people who want to vote yes, but maybe no longer feel that you know the SNP represent them to the extent that it was once the case. And I think what we're trying to get at here is that is the Greens have sort of gradually and slowly built over sort of recent years in the wake of yes movements and stuff like that. It feels like there's a real opportunity for the Greens to like just be themselves and actually have like a substantial natural growth is that part of what you all looking at as election strategy
2: yeah like I, I really hope so and like the polls would certainly suggest that you know we're consistently um polling on about um 11 or 12 MSPs and I think exactly what you just said Matt in terms of being ourselves like I think it would be problematic if we just started like twisting ourselves into different shapes to try and like spot a loophole and be like oh hello come to us you know i yeah. think we've got to trust that um we stand for the values that we that we have done um for a long time and you know we're, we're maybe a bit more bolshy now in talking about them but mm-hmm. um they, th- that's that's what we've been saying you know we've been talking about the climate emergency for a long time but we've also been standing up for human rights for a long time and yep. when it's not been popular do you know what i mean and like one of the things that i really value about our party is that we set the policy. You know, the policy is made by all the members and it's one member, one vote. And no matter who you are, you know, Patrick Harvey is the same weight in the conference as, as someone who just joined yesterday, you know, and um and also we hold each other accountable to the party policy that is set by members. And all of us are are bound by that, including those of us who are elected representatives. So um for me it's like, right, okay, so human rights, human rights for everybody are unconditional and we have to we have to support that. We have to support the rights of trans yeah. people. We have to keep doing that. We've been doing it for ages before it was, you know, Absolutely. something that Twitter exploded over. Um
1: Abs- yeah, he have
0: got a really solid record on those issues. Yeah. I
1: mean,
0: so what are the I mean you just mentioned the climate emergency. Um like what there's been quite a lot of sort of misinformation, disinformation, and good information amongst the sort of climate emergency. And one of the ones that kept keeps getting sort of popping up for me especially when i'm talking to people is, is that well it's kind of pointless what we do if these four big companies don't do it you know in china and india and let's look at like the big polluters. um is there anything that we actually can do personally or in like a city wide and even countrywide as scotland because we're a small country to actually make like a good impact on the climate emergency
2: yeah like it's a really good question i think that for me is a really troubling way in which environmentalism has been hijacked by capitalism you know and it's about like (laughs) um you have the wrong toothbrush let me advertise to you which toothbrush that you should buy instead and feel less guilty you know so then you've got people who you are watching that and feeling guilty because they've not got everything sort of perfect and then And like some things are really complicated, like which washing powder should you be using and and blah, 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 right? And then for a lot of people, and I would say like the majority of people in Glasgow, if you're just trying to survive, like toothbrushes are not on your radar, right? So um, there's a danger that then that gets, if that's what in fact, like caring about the planet gets reduced to and this sort of greenwashed capitalism, absolute shite, then, you know, that's not for anybody. That's that's so unhelpful. And it's just like about buying more shit as well. (laughs) So it's it's just growth. So, so like, that's just slapping one. the
1: word green on something doesn't necessarily make it green
2: exactly exactly um so there's that right but then also i mean what i want to be talking about is how in our city right so we've already got the effects the impacts of climate which impact on poorer communities more so whether like the kind of global stuff like yeah absolutely we do have the kind of corporations that need to be held accountable and you know there's all those stuff there is all that um that's kind of inescapable but our city has so much inequality in it. And that is impact, that, imp, that is um, related to climate. And some of the things about climate globally are much more obvious because you can see like flooding in coastal communities or, or, you know, huge displacement of people. So it's, it's easier to see how globally the people who've caused the least amount of kind of emissions, are are still being affected the worst. But mm-hmm. the, that's that's happening in our city as well. It's just much less obvious. So the fact that, like, I think it's over half of class don't have access to a car, right? So you're you're forced to rely on public transport, and our public transport is dreadful. Um you've got the fact that, you know, where where was the M8 built? You know, it wasn't it wasn't in the West End. Um so, and that's the same across the UK. I think there was just a report yesterday talking about how air pollution and, and poor air quality. Is responsible for twice the number of deaths that they thought and it particularly impacts poorer communities bme communities and it's people who you, because if you've got worse health if you've got like bad heart health or bad lung health like again that's to do with poverty that's to do with all those other factors so air quality is not this like academic thing like it's it's literally killing people and it's killing people in uneven patterns and that's to do with poverty um or thinking about food right so We've got places, like, how long have people in Castamilk been trying to campaign for somewhere that they can get access to fresh food? It doesn't yep. exist, right? And um, so we've got places in our city that are food deserts, and you've also got places that so many people are reliant on food banks, and, you know, you get tinned food. And obviously, like, it, that's a lifeline, right? But, <laughs> you know, we, we need to do so much better. we definitely actually, yeah. I
1: mean, We've seen yeah. the pictures in George Square. Just the day, the people queuing in the snow, minus five conditions, um, to you know accept food parcels, and you're like, yes. man, we need to do better than that. Like that's exactly. just unacceptable.
2: Exactly. And then, like, I learned recently that the housing in Knightswood was designed <laughs> after the war that every person, every family, sorry, every home had access to growing space at the back, so you had enough to enough room to grow vegetables. And like, so in terms of how Glasgow, like. Whether we like it or not glasgow is going to be impacted by climate change we already have been so we're getting more flooding more extreme weather and kind of snow is getting hotter and hotter every year we had the like you know the science center started melting the other year so this is going to keep happening the train line got washed away last summer and it impacts more on poorer people and people that are the furthest from power however if we change our city to be more climate resilient then that will impact on those communities more so like a climate-resilient city in Glasgow is going to be a fairer city. So um, if everybody had access to a bit of land, that they could grow vegetables and fruit and have access and ownership over food, you know, mm-hmm. actual ownership of decent, healthy food that is locally grown, then, like, that's that's good for the climate. But more importantly, it gives people some dignity and some choice over their, yeah. their food supply. Um, if we had decent public transport that was free and accessible to everyone, then that's good for the climate. But more importantly, it gives people a way to get to work and back. And it gives people, you know, you can get to college and you can get mm-hmm. to get about your life without spending a fortune. So, like, that to me is is so much what we should be focusing on. And we're trying to drive it, and it is at the top of the agenda at the moment, but mm. it's about action rather than just rhetoric Yeah. the next battle.
0: What, what can we do? I mean, what are the barriers to things like free public transport? Yeah, I Other mean, than the money that first... <laughs> Or Arabello, are siphoning off, of, like the, the
1: people that are paying for their tickets and they go up. Yeah, because we're, we're paying for the transport through the public bus anyway. Why are we not also yeah. getting the benefit here?
2: Yeah, and if you look at things like the the low emission zone <coughs> in Glasgow that we've been pushing for, so and that has started to come in. So that's the idea that you can't come into the city centre if your vehicles are not past a certain standard of of um, pollution. So that's why we've um, got all the the, the the recent buses like a year and a half ago, I think. So, you've seen like the new 38s, the new uh, yeah. 75, the yellow one that goes from Castleman. So, those buses meet a Euro 6 standard. Now I know that. <laughs> I never thought I'd be a person who knows about standards and buses. But, um those things up, eh? indeed. So, those kind of things are like that's important. And we do have to work to some extent with the bus companies, but the amount of subsidies that they are now getting. To because the bus companies kick up a fuss of so like, oh, woe is me, you know, we can't possibly meet your standards and it's so unfair and how dare you target us and blah, blah, blah. So then they get this huge amount of money to like pay for new um, new vehicles and the council doesn't own them. Like, why are we paying private companies when we, we should uh, own, you know, uh,
1: so corporate socialism, own into...
2: <laughs> like
1: um, own our trains and everything? So, where the climate stuff, I'm um... This is one of the things that obviously appeals to me in terms of the Greens platform is that not just talking about like new ideas, but actually like planning to put them in place as and when you're able to. Like, and that's something that I don't see a lot in terms of this sort of you know climate emergency for the other political parties. There is a lot of talk, but I don't see a lot of plans or you know, a lot of the necessary action. And it's something that I also see reflected in Another part of the sort of green platform is the um, the sort of favourable leaning towards things like UBI. Um, I think the climate emergency and the way work and industry and stuff are changing, as we've covered in sort of multiple previous episodes, is, is, you know, we're moving into like a really sort of new era that needs new ideas and the stuff that we've held on in the past just, in a lot of sense, isn't going to be valid anymore. Um, And I think UBI is one of these big ones. So like, what... Are you in agreement that you know some form of UBI should be explored? Or is this
2: yes, more a party absolutely. thing. No, no, like this is like I could be my middle name. I think it's like <laughs> one of the. I think it's one of the most transformative pol- policies that you can think of. Like, um, sometimes people ask, like, if you could do one thing to change things, like, what would you do? And I think it would be putting a UBI. You know, because, uh, and it's been been party policy for a long time, um, mm-hmm. and because I just think well exactly as you just said Matt like so much of how we've worked and and um, the response to the pandemic has been so fragmented and so many people have fallen through the cracks of you don't qualify for this grant but you have to qualify for this one and actually like councils are are now responsible for dispersing like 27 different pots of grants or some absolutely insane and like with one financial services team great thanks very much Scottish government cheers mm-hmm. um so yeah we have just got this like insane infrastructure that's that's been put up in the, in the last 12 months rather than just saying do you know what we need to just give everyone a, a floor so that you can't fall through that and mm-hmm. the thing is why is that not counted as health investment you know think of how transformative it would be for the health service, yes. for dentistry do you know what i mean for for social work for homelessness for addictions because if you knew if you knew that you always had a certain amount of money coming in so that you did not have to worry your basic decency your basic dignity sorry in terms of uh, where you had to stay and enough food for your kids and clothes you know school shoes like I just I just think it's a no-brainer like why why are we even still having this debate so I'm beyond like it's an idea whose time has come because I'm now like yes you know 20 years ago this is this is this is what we needed because it would it would transform everything else and I do actually think like yeah, people are put off by the cost, obviously. But, like, how much have we spent on pandemic relief? And and yeah. I have no idea. I don't know how to count it up either because it's been so sporadic.
1: By the guy Sunak just found £330 million, right? billion pounds in the back of the couch one day and then yeah. has but just topped just, it up consistently. You know yeah, I
2: mean? but how much have we just spent on, like, the Trident as well? And but
1: Exactly.
2: UBI would be an upfront cost, of course. Mm-hmm. But, like, we do that all the time. We see that in council budgets of, like, you know, you've got to put a certain amount of money into a new program because in five years time you're going to get that investment so that's a fairly sound financial concept that you put in money up front because you know it's going to pay off so if we put money into a universal basic income then in 20 years time look at how healthy the kids are you know look at how much money we're not having to spend on health services on trauma counseling on you know whatever else is going on like this is this is the single biggest transformative thing and it, I just I would
0: do it tomorrow, I could I think like when people talk about the budget, they don't realise that we're already spending billions on housing benefit, universal credit that would just all go away. Do you know? And like if we had like a a, yeah. a basic income and also that there's there's a few sort of bullshit arguments that come back about like, well, why should everybody get it? And you can work it into the tax system to take it back off of people that don't need it if you want. Um but I think the big one that really sings to a lot of people, especially on the right, is the idea that giving people money will lead to a sort of society of lazy people. This is the this is the one that
1: I know sodom.
0: Yeah. This is what I mean, other than once once you start you to discredit the, the budgets, <laughs> once you start to discredit how much it's going to cost us and and we can work it in if you look at it and it's been looked at many times it is an affordable benefit that we can give to people the one that always comes back is oh people just sit about and do nothing what would your response be to that if you were met with that argument well
2: well it's usually a guy
0: like like... me that's saying it white (laughs) you know like (laughs) middle class like it's usually guys like me but yeah like what, what would your argument back to that be
2: so right on one hand like let's think about the segment of our society that already have been given so much money on a plate so like the boys that went to fetties and eaten and stuff and then end up running the country like uh, they've been fairly productive i think despite their never having to work for money um not that i agree with what they've done you know but um no. that's such certainly been productive
1: that's one way of putting it they have certainly <laughs> been productive so yeah, ah, yeah they've, right we've been busy
2: but it's just another thing of like some things that you can get away with if you're rich and you can't do it if you're poor, you know. And Like so
1: <coughs> like and, GameStop, you know what I mean? Like well, last yes. week where, you know, the stock market can formulate algorithms that invent money out of thin air, but some dude on Reddit is not allowed to take a thousand pounds of these voting savings and actually like take any of their money off them. You know what I mean? Like,
2: exactly, how so, dare you? Sorry, I said yes. there. <laughs> no, but like, that's the thing. It's like, it's, I just think those arguments are very much about, you know poor people should know their place and then um, it should be it's just that kind of bootstrapping of like you need to be working in your absolute squalor and misery and if you're not then it's your own fault you know it's just um i i don't have a lot of patience for those kind of arguments because i just think well look there will be some people who have too much money great we can tax them more fantastic that gives us a really good tax base for for public services let's do that and then but also like there's been global studies there's been studies of of where this has been put into place and and um it's it's overwhelmingly the case that it's been positive outcomes and people end up so right some people don't work as much because they don't have to and they don't have to do like backbreaking labor some people go on to further education instead or some people have more kids or some people take up like a random hobby that they love and like people get more creative people are and that's the other thing of like what are we missing out you know because what about all the people who are too poor to pursue their dreams or their Absolutely. You know, writing ability or their I don't know inventiveness or like what are we missing in terms of scientific discoveries or or creative output because like so many people are not just not allowed to express themselves because they've got to be stuck in a shit job working shit hours forever.
1: Yeah, yeah, this is a part and that's of, not that's just this... one study. That's you know, everybody that's ever looked at UBI yeah. has come back with like broadly the same answer that you've just given us, there aren't they? Absolutely. And No Gallagher says that I love to say to people, do you like Oasis?
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah, because we, we all love Oasis. Like No Gallagher literally used benefits to fund writing definitely, maybe. And he openly speaks about how without the benefit system, Oasis wouldn't be there. Yeah. And all of that 80s indie like that that everybody loves, Joy Joy Division, Sex Pistols right through, all of these guys were claiming benefits, do you know what I mean? So like that's, and I think we're actually starting to see now that not a lot of working class kids are being able to start art bands and that's where all the good stuff is. Yeah. So we're going to miss out so much culture. And Absolutely. I'm, I think that this comes to like, do people value art and, and do, because that that is a big one when people go, people become writers and they'll become artists, musicians, They'll take up extra things, that, that the hobbies, like you're saying, and people are just kind of like, well... And it comes back to that doesn't make money. That's not going to make anybody money. The, the 40 hours a week and the dead-end job with depression and anxiety, and that's what's going to make money. I, I believe <laughs> what you just said, it's about keeping poor, poor people in their place. Um, I think somebody said to me, I think it might have even to you and me, Matt, or maybe you said it, Matt, and somebody went, do you think the Queen wants to queue up for a flight? So, there will never be equality. They don't want it because she wants her privilege, and these that's level what people. To me. Was that not you? I don't know. I maybe, so. maybe I heard it somewhere, but that's, that was the kind of the argument that was made that if you think that people that are currently millionaires, billionaires, or like the elite class, are going to stand in a queue for a British Airways flight while everybody's on the same income, they're not going to vote for it. So, mm. yeah. they'll continue to vote for that sort of elitism that we've got in our society. But
2: and then the that's also sorry paul
0: no no Absolutely
2: no it's just enough. like as if ubi in itself would i mean it would it would certainly help narrow inequality but also like as long as you've got inherited wealth as well like those people are fine do you know what i mean yeah <laughs> they're gonna be okay um there's a lot more work that we need to do so oh yeah it's just um it's really frustrating that kind of hypocrisy as well you see it all the time and people have so much like oh what a buttery, and rather than just do you know what let's let's trust people that is the same thing actually it's about like the free school meals thing and, and Glasgow thankfully moved to giving out um like cash payments for families um because actually to start with like yes it was help like it was really good to give you know family support in terms of it was vouchers for Iceland but like I had people phone me up and be like how am I going to get there you know or, sorry farm foods um, I don't have a farm foods near me and then yeah. I would have to get the bus and I don't feel safe on the bus right now or I can't take my four kids with me or I can't, you know, there's no um, culturally specific foods, you know, and mm-hmm. just just trust people, just trust people that actually yeah. they are the experts of their own lives and situations and, and, you know, we should just, like, we're just missing that whole, um, yeah, ability to trust people as, as the yeah. experts in their own lives.
1: Absolutely. So obviously you know conscious of time here um let's without potentially jinxing anything, let's uh, imagine you get elected um what is what is the what's the the top thing you want to achieve at hollywood Let's be positive. I'm going to say, when you get elected, what is the top thing that you want to do? I, I was trying not to, I was not to anything
0: there, you know what I mean? Lad? Manifest oh. it, Kim. Manifest it. Manifest. Tell us what you're going to
2: do. <laughs> I hate that word. I hate that. It's just like... I hate
0: it as well. <laughs> white girls on
2: Instagram be like, oh my God, I manifest a thing, rather than like, mm, maybe that was your privilege. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh God. I don't, um, do you know what? I don't know yet because I, I think I need to like, I've got so many things and I don't know how to like put them in. And to be honest, that's politics because actually you've got your wish list, and then you kind of have to be pragmatic of like, okay, well, this issue is coming up. and So I appreciate that. Like the personal kind of hills that I would die on include, I'm really interested in, so like supporting public services and supporting, uh, so what I've been pushing on locally have been about um, White Hill Pool, which is the treasure of Deniston. Um, I loved that place when
0: I was growing up.
2: It's phenomenal. I absolutely 20, love it.
0: Twenty p oxtail soups out of the vending <laughs> machine in the, the lobby at the White Hill Pool, and being able to see into the gym, people just yeah. looking down to the Your, pool. I love that place. Vinegary roll and at
1: the Swallow Cafe. The Swallow Cafe, yeah.
2: or oh, the Swallow Cafe. There's another institution as well. I and mean, be George the Little hot outside, who is my pal. Um, but yeah, so like we need a, we need a sorry council tax. Like it's an absolute joke how local services are, are funded or not. Um, so that's a big deal. Um, there's other things there about. So I have become really interested in access to healthcare and who doesn't have access to healthcare. Okay. So there's issues about. Um, so for example, there's this amazing organisation called Sahelia, um, and they're uh, they're based in in actually just outside Springburn and St. Rollox, and um, they support. It's predominantly black women, but women of colour. And a lot of many of whom are migrants, refugees and asylum seekers. And um, so I've been supporting Sahelia for a while and I've got to know some of the women and I just kind of listen to their stories and things like. If you go to so, like access to health, when you if you go and try and register for a GP, you're trying to register and maybe your fourth language and the receptionist is really hostile to you. You know, um, they don't have the patience for you and they are maybe sometimes there's outbreak racist. Or maybe when you go and see the GP and there is an interpreter, so sometimes there isn't an interpreter, so you don't know, and you don't know the words for, you know, parts of yeah. your body or, or cold or, you know, like fever. How do you know those words? Mm-hmm. Um, but if there is an interpreter, the interpreter might be a friend of your husband. So it is not safe for you to talk about, you know, domestic abuse or okay. your sexual health or your body parts in front of this person because it's not culturally, that's not a thing that you would ever do. Yeah. Um, or if you've had experience of FGM for example then they, like there's just a whole load of like pain but also shame and, and kind of trauma triggers to then go anywhere near a doctor about that and also you might not know that what you experience is 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 wrong like if you've been in pain since the age of 12 then you you don't know that it's wrong um yeah. and um so yeah like those kind of barriers and and those are things that like no one is talking about do you know what I mean and that's something that um, I've just been learning about more at a kind of local level, but there's a lot more that I could be doing, I think, um, in terms of policy about health. Um, but yeah, and because I worked in prisons, I am, I've got so much that I want to talk about about our justice system and how it is it's not working for people, you know, and, and if I yeah. had, you know, and we can, can we talk about feminist prisons, you know, where it's okay to have emotions, and can we talk about trauma-informed criminal justice, where, yep. where we recognise the trauma that people have gone through, which doesn't, doesn't ever excuse anyone's behaviour, but it gets it, no. context and says, well, look, what else did we think was going to happen in this particular se- yeah. set of circumstances, and how okay. many people have been failed before, before we ever get anywhere near jail? Absolutely.
1: Having, having the the trauma in way. So yeah. I haven't spoken to Natalie so they Like that, one of the things that she wanted for the you know, prison or you know, justice reform is for the system to be uh, to learn lessons and be, uh, be a bit more proactive and be a bit more preventive
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's so difficult because it's not a vote winner, do you know, so no party is going to go towards that um, and 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 um, go for that. So I feel like I have So a vote
1: winner here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you. Well, I mean, yeah, but I just feel like having gone through that's not it's not academic for me do you know what i mean i i feel like i've had these very i don't know intense conversations with a load of guys because if you support so what i would be doing would be going into prisons and doing songwriting workshops and see supporting someone to write a song it's one of the most like intimate experiences that you can have because they're telling you stuff that sometimes people have never told anyone else Mm -hmm. and supporting people or sometimes supporting like if if um, people couldn't write for example then I would be literally just like being a scribe for them or or trying to get them to express things that they don't have the words for and so it's like I've had these like really intensive experiences and I've been privileged enough to be trusted with people's stories and and I feel like I've got a responsibility as well to try and get some some change
0: amazing you got anything else I'm I'm happy with that mate are you happy with that Kim? yeah absolutely it's
2: been oh, yeah. so like
0: we could blather their way yeah absolutely we just don't want to keep you any longer than like just and also as well i think when we're doing these interviews if once they go over the hour mark people just tend to sort of slide off after an hour so <laughs> we try and keep them quite absolutely. sort of punchy um i've really enjoyed our conversation yeah, like really really and like i'm rooting for you definitely oh, thank you same here
1: thank um, you been
0: great to actually get you in do you want to give yourself a shout as in like if, if somebody's listening to this and they, they want to either engage uh, with yourself on social media or even get involved like with the campaign yeah with your campaign
2: yeah absolutely thank you so um i am on social media so twitter it's at captain kim um instagram is long, and facebook is i think long as well but just if you search kim long greens and um, then you'll find me um and yeah get in touch i absolutely need people to um be part of the campaign as well and also there's links on there um to give a donation to my campaign because obviously greens we're so much smaller than other parties we do not have big business you know yeah ba- banging on our doors wanting to give us huge corporate sponsorship so we are very much trying to get by with lots and lots of really small donations each month, but that makes an absolutely massive difference. So yeah, that would be amazing if people are inspired. If you want to see me as your MSP, then help me get there.
0: Outstanding. Superb. Thanks very much for your time, Kim.
2: Oh, thank you guys so much. This has been an absolute pleasure.